Okay, you're Good on. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Um, this is a remarkable show of our community to support Lucy, and I think in a conversation that is so vital and important for our community, for our entire country. I want to welcome everyone to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Uh, my name is Deepu Gowda. I'm a general internist here at Columbia. I trained here uh, for my very second month of internship. I was doing narrative medicine work with Rita Sharon. This has been a vital part of my training of what it means to be a physician, what it means to be an educator. My role at the medical school here is I run Foundations of Clinical Medicine Tutorials, which is the course where students learn the physical exam and the interview. Humanism, the idea of the patient being much more than a body, being a person with stories, a person with history, a person with community, runs through the ethic of how we train physicians and train healthcare teams at Columbia. You know, at a, at a time when our country feels so divided, opportunities like this, I'm reminded that opportunities like this are so vital for us to come together as a community and to recognize our commonality, our common desire to alleviate suffering, our common desire to listen deeply and carefully to our patients, our common desire to improve healthcare. And I hope that you will return to join us at Narrative Medicine Rounds. We hold these rounds the first Wednesday of every month and we look forward to seeing you in our coming months. On March 1st, New York staff writer Rachel V will be with us to talk about writing and reporting on medical conditions and their social implications. She has written on topics such as euthanasia, psychosis, addiction, and crime. On April 5th, Richard Zanner, a professor emeritus of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, will be with us to engage on a, on a philosophical exploration of what it means to listen to others and to tell stories. On May 3rd, medical journalist Harriet Washington will be with us. Many of you might know her work. Washington is the author of Medical Apartheid. It's an exploration of the medical experimentation conducted on African Americans. She'll be joined and interviewed by writer Randy Cohen, who most of us know as the ethicist in the New York Times. Um, he's also the creator of the radio program Person, Place, Thing. Our very special guest tonight will be introduced by Nellie Herman. Nellie is the creative director of the program in narrative medicine. Nellie has been in the program since the very beginning, really one of the architects of the program in narrative medicine. Nellie is a writer. So to think about a novelist and a writer as having a central role in faculty at a medical school was groundbreaking and was a, a landmark event at the time. Now it feels like, of course, of course we want And she's made a tremendous impact on the way we think about healthcare, the way we think about training physicians at Columbia. She has two novels, The Cure for Grief and The Season of Migration, both received critical acclaim. And the whole time, she's been making a very compelling argument that creativity is a necessary capacity for healthcare workers. Nellie. Thank you, Deepu. Um, I feel like I, gosh, this is incredible. I, I have been at many, many a 
sure I've ever seen a room so packed. And I am, and I'm guessing Lucy might be used to this, but I'm finding it incredibly moving um, just thinking of how many people this book has reached already. Um, and thank you for coming. And I'm very curious, and I hope at some point in our conversation we'll find out where all of you have come here from. Um, <laughs> I'm really sort of dying to know. Um, I usually look out and recognize most of the audience, and today I do not at all. Um, so I know we all want to get to our main event, but I will read my introduction nonetheless. Um, so, and remember that I prepared this not knowing there would be so many in here. Um, I'm sure that for most of the people in this room, Paul Kalanithi's book, When Breath Becomes Air, does not need much of an introduction. For those of us who work at the intersection of the humanities and medicine, the book could hardly be missed. In the months after it was first published, I was told by countless friends about this posthumously published New York Times bestselling memoir written by a neurosurgeon in the year before he died and urged that I really couldn't, literally was told multiple times that I could not consider myself part of the field of narrative medicine without having read this book. But I admit that though I bought the book very quickly, I delayed reading it for many months, knowing that its author was my age and expecting the book to be about death. I hesitated, not wanting to be confronted with what I knew, what I expected the book to contain. I waited for the right time, as if there's ever such a time. Um, and I tell you all of this so that my the hyperbole that I will use in a moment will maybe be even more believed. When I finally did sit down to read the book, I was confronted with a work that is not at all dark or scary or really about death or disturbing, but on the contrary is filled with light. The story here, strangely, miraculously, is not about death or about loss, but is really about the search for meaning, for life's meaning, with a capital M. Paul Kalanithi was a person who strove for meaning all of his life, quite consciously, actively searching for it in all ways. And every detail in his tale, down to the idle moments of his childhood, are about his search and its results. The book is the story of the ways that he attempted to capture meaning and the ways that it eluded him. And ultimately, as he moved bravely toward his end, a dispatch to the rest of us from a place that we will all someday be of what he learned and what he saw or didn't see. I struggled so much with this introduction because this book is really so magical. I'm sure all of you know this already. The experience of reading it is so transcendent and really beyond words. But Paul was not without words, and his incredible honesty his enviable clarity of sight and of language mean that, refreshingly, there are no silver bullets here, no magic epiphanies to only half believe. The result is a book that, though it is not untrue to say it is about mortality, is a book you want to read again and again and again, for it reminds you of the incredible gift it is to be alive. It is also, relevantly to those of us here, about being a doctor, and specifically about being a neuroscientist, the training, the fascination and curiosity of the brain, the ideals of medicine versus the reality, and about the true and ideal relationship between doctor and patient. And it is, too, about literature and about language and about how both of these things relate to medicine and to the human connection. There are so many passages I would want to quote from this book, but I will just quote one that I loved. 
Before Paul went to medical school, he did a master's in English literature, and he writes about feeling like he didn't quite belong in an English department and didn't quite belong in science and medicine, at least initially, either. And this quote alone shows us in this room that he would have belonged quite firmly here. I had come to see language as an almost supernatural force, existing between people, bringing out brains, shielded in centimeter thick skulls, into communion. A word meant something only between people, and life's meaning, its virtue, had something to do with the depths of the relationship we form. It was the relational aspect of humans, i.e. human relationality, that undergirded meaning. Yet somehow, this process existed in brains and bodies, subject to their own physiologic imperatives, prone to breaking and failing. There must be a way, I thought, that the language of life has experienced, of passion, of hunger, of love, bore some relationship, however convoluted, to the language of neurons, digestive tracts, and heartbeats. So, though of course it is our great loss not to be able to have the author of this book here in person to speak with us, I am nonetheless honored to be able to introduce Paul's widow, Lucy Kalaniki, who has been gracious enough to come join us. Lucy is an internal medicine physician and a faculty member at Stanford School of Medicine, and she wrote the gorgeous epilogue in the book, which I should say, uh, more than one person told me was the part of the book that they found the most moving and was also the only part of the book that I cried my way through. Um, Dr. Kalanithi, Lucy's interests and research are in healthcare value, meaning in medicine, patient-centered care, and end-of-life care. And I know that she too very much belongs with us here in this room. So I'm just gonna quickly introduce her with her own words um, from a quote from her epilogue. The thing about lung cancer is that it's not exotic, Paul wrote in an email to his best friend, Robin. It's just tragic enough and just imaginable enough. The reader can get into these shoes, walk a bit, and say, so that's what it looks like from here. Sooner or later, I'll be back here in my own shoes. That's what I'm aiming for, I think. Not the sensationalism of dying, and not exhortations to gather rosebed buds, but here's what lies up ahead in the road. Of course, he did more than just describe the terrain. He traversed it bravely. Paul's decision not to avert his eyes from death epitomizes a fortitude we don't celebrate enough in our death-avoiding culture. His strength was defined by ambition and effort, but also by softness, the opposite of bitterness. He spent much of his life wrestling with the question of how to live a meaningful life, and his book explores that essential territory. Always the seer is a sayer, Emerson wrote. Somehow his dream is told. Somehow he publishes it with solemn joy. Writing this book was a chance for, his, for this courageous seer to be a sayer, to teach us to face death with integrity. Thank you, Lucy. So 
I'm going to just speak a little bit and do a brief reading, if that's okay, and then we'll do most of our program as a conversation, um, including discussion with the audience. Uh, so Paul got really lucky um, to have the opportunity to write When Breath Becomes Air. He, uh, when he, after his diagnosis with metastatic lung cancer, about a year before he died, but when he was still feeling relatively well and working as a neurosurgeon, he wrote an essay called How Long Have I Got Left? Um, ultimately, that's what it was called. It was published in the New York Times, and he had sent that short little essay, which wrestles with um, the pain of uncertainty, even if you know you're dying. Um, uncertainty is its own kind of pain in deciding how it is you'll spend your time. And he sent this essay to two people, one of whom wrote back and said, well, it's okay. It's, you bury your lead, and it's about three different things, and you're way funnier than this essay is. Um, and here are my line edits. Keep working on it. And the other one wrote back and said, I forwarded this straight to the op-ed desk at the New York Times. And they published it a month later. And that's what led to, um, ultimately, the book deal, um, which turned out to be, as you can imagine, um, very meaningful for Paul. Um, but obviously, he didn't live to see the book published. And um, what he did see was that first essay um, sh shared widely online. And one of the things that was most meaningful to him was hearing from other patients mm -hmm. and hearing from a nurse who told him that they would be discussing that essay in a narrative medical program at their um, narrative medicine program at their medical center. And I just remember Paul's response to that email um, about that essay being shared. And so I just think, well, what if Paul could see um, the group that's come together tonight to uh, talk about his book? So thank you for participating in um, you know, letting Paul have a legacy that he had dreamed of um, so deeply. Next, um, well, let me do this. I'll read a few um, pieces from the book, and then uh, we'll watch a little video of Paul. So two ways of bringing Paul's voice uh, into the room. And yesterday I turned 38, which is something that Paul never did. Mm -hmm. So now I'm older than Paul, which I don't really like at all. <laughs> um, and so anyway, that um, sort of really meaningful. I have a twin sister and I came to New York for this and to visit my sister and have my horrible birthday of turning 38. So um, <laughs> thank you for making today uh, better than yesterday. <laughs> so um, I'm just gonna read the very beginning and the very end of the prologue. I flipped through the CAT scan images, the diagnosis obvious. The lungs were matted with innumerable tumors, the spine deformed, a full lobe of the liver obliterated. Cancer widely disseminated. I was a neurosurgical resident entering my final year of training. Over the last six years, I had examined scores of such scans on the off chance that some procedure might benefit the patient, but this scan was different. It was my own. I had received the plastic arm bracelet all patients wear, put on the familiar light blue hospital gown, walked past the nurses I knew by name, and was checked into a room, the same room where I had seen hundreds of patients over the years. A young nurse, one I hadn't met, poked her head in. The doctor will be in soon. And with that, the future I had imagined, the one just about to be realized, the culmination 
culmination of decades of striving evaporated. This next bit is about um, a very difficult decision that Paul and I made. Flush in the face of mortality, many decisions became compressed, urgent, and unreceding. Foremost among them for us, should Lucy and I have a child? Even if our marriage had been strained toward the end of my residency, we'd always remained very much in love. Our relationship was still deep in meaning, a shared and evolving vocabulary about what mattered. Both of us yearning to be parents, we each thought of the other. Lucy hoped I had years left, but understanding my prognosis, she felt that the choice whether to spend my remaining time as a father should be mine. What are you most afraid of or sad about? She asked me one night as we were lying in bed. Leaving you, I told her. Will having a newborn distract from the time we have together, she asked. Don't you think having to say goodbye to a child will make your death more painful? Wouldn't it be great if it did? We did it. <laughs> and now I have a two and a half year old who I am positive is smarter than I am because of, if you do the math. Um, and she's the best thing that ever happened to me. So um, uh, glad we did it. And then this last little bit is from um, an essay that I wrote called My Marriage Didn't End When I Became a Widow. And it's talking about the idea of when somebody dies your feelings for that person, and in some ways your commitment to the relationship um, don't change. One night recently, alone in bed, I read The Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis, and I came across the observation that bereavement is not the truncation of married love, but one of its regular phases. He writes that what we want is to live our marriage well and faithfully through that phase too. Before he died, Paul asked me to shepherd the manuscript of his book to publication. Doing so over the past months, I felt I'm continuing to help Paul live out his life and give this gift to our daughter. And now, as I watch Paul's work take on a life of its own, I begin to take a on a life of my own. Our home is now a home for our daughter and me. I've kept Paul's favorite clothes and books, but he no longer has a sock his own bookcase. I bought a new bed. I've gone back to work. And six months after Paul died, I removed my wedding ring because it felt right to do so in that moment. Only minutes before, I had not yet considered it. I've learned that the timing of bereavement, perhaps like the initial stages of falling in love, is utterly unpredictable. As a child, I was always told that a grave should be stepped around not onto, that only flowers should touch it. With Paul, the rules feel reversed. Just as it felt right to lie alongside the grave, finally restful on that spring afternoon a few weeks after his death, it feels right to bring friends there now, to watch the sunset and pour a beer out for him. And it feels right for our bright-eyed, one-year-old daughter to crawl among the flowers I placed on the grave. We are making this place ours. Mm -hmm. 
So um, now I have um, uh, this very short video, it's about two minutes, um, that Random House put together um, with some Stanford footage as a book trailer. Apparently book trailers are a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I bet millennials know that, but I did not know that. So um, here's just um, five years down the line. I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're dead, or may not be. She asked me when I was 17, but I do. So I definitely get a writer. But found Madison was in fact the perfect place. When I first began noticing symptoms in my 60-year residency, obviously Ruth and I were both very suspicious that I had some form of cancer. But actually having the confirmation is still devastating. Since Katie's birth, my time with her has had a very peculiar and free nature. And in all probability, I won't live long enough for her to remember me. And so, the time is just is what it is. It's a careful balance. If you don't think about the bad case, that ending is gonna be very rough on you and your family. But if you don't think about the good case, you're going to miss an opportunity to really make the most of your life and time. Okay, so I have, I mean, I have, there's so much to talk about. I'm, I have so many questions, but I will stick to the ones I wrote down. Um, I thought um, might be, I would be very interested to hear. I, one of the things I felt was very struck by as I was reading the book, and I don't know how, other people also thought about this, but I was struck by how little, virtually not at all, Paul referenced his writing journey in the book. Um, he doesn't really talk about writing the book. I was sort of very much expecting at some point in the narrative to get to, and now I'm writing this book, um, and it doesn't happen. Um, and you spoke about it a little, wrote about it a little in your epilogue, but I, I would be curious to hear a little more just about 
that, you know, how, when did, how did you write the book? Um, what was the process of his writing the book like? Was there a lot of, did he do a lot of revision or was it really, but are we reading really how he left it? Um, and also following with that, um, sort of a, a meta-ish question, but I was also thinking about how, what this was like for you having gone through this with Paul, watching him not only go through the illness, but also go through the writing of the book, and you know, what, how did he share the work with you? Um, were there things in the book that you were surprised to see, or, or descriptions of events that you witnessed that were, you know, anything along those lines? Please raise your hand if you, at some point, can't hear me or want me to do something. Um, so, uh, how did Paul write the book, and what was it like, and then what happened after Paul died? Um, uh, so, like I said, there was this really kind of incredibly serendipitous, fortuitous thing that happened. Um, uh, for people who've read the book, you know that Paul struggled with the decision about whether to return to work as a neurosurgeon despite having terminal cancer. Um, and he chose to do it, but um, uh, sort of had this idea, you know, he says something like, uh, living with terminal illness is a process, it's not a one-time event, and he had sort of felt, if I knew I had just a few months, I might just spend time with my family, and if I had one or two years, I'd really wanna write a book. And if I knew I had five or 10, back to working as a neurosurgeon. And what I noticed about his decision making was he knew what was most likely. He knew he likely had a few months to a few years left to live. But with the emerging therapies um, that are coming out now, thank you cancer um, scientists, maybe in this room, um, there's some real unpredictability even for stage four cancer now where perhaps he would live a decade. And he, he thought, you know, I'm gonna kick myself if I live a decade and I'm not a neurosurgeon. So he was sort of working to the best case possibility, and at each setback of the disease, he was completely reorienting, you know, what his thinking was. And I think it was remarkable to see. It's one thing to know you're dying, but the um, sort of existential or, or um, upheaval in your own identity um, so uh, can't be overstated. It was so interesting to notice how much of our selves pinned on our future selves, mm -hmm. and whether that's having a child and then daydreaming about that child, or um, you know, people who are slogging through their residencies now, thinking about what it means for their future lives and um, career. So as Paul said, you know, that all evaporated, but every single time the disease changed, it evaporated again. So right at this critical moment where he became quite ill, and the targeted therapy was no longer working, he had a literary agent. And so the funny contrast was Paul started to look more and more ill and wan, but his um, mind was like just getting going because he was conceiving of the book. Um, so there's like this baby and the book that are just like erupting into life in our house. It's a very kind of funny contrast that was incredibly joyful and painful at the same time. And um, I, basically read the book in real time, like mm -hmm. daily or weekly or something like that. And Paul 
was a writer and I am a talker. And so to be reading it um, and then have it as a communication tool. Because um, even though Paul's a little removed in the book, um, it's very intimate. Um, so it was useful to actually read it in real time. And uh, some things surprised me. He wrote about the um, sort of marital conflict we had essentially over work-life balance as residents, as when he was a chief resident. And I didn't think he was gonna write that in there. Um, so I was like, oh, interesting narrative device that the prologue to your book has this like catchy intro. So, <laughs> so um, but then I was like, you know, if I were a reader, I would realize quickly that this writer is gonna be honest um, and that, and I would be, um, you know, it's the truth. So I was like, so, well, we're gonna do write the truth. Um, and um, so anyway, Paul secured the book deal um, and then died three months later with the manuscript essentially written, although I know there were some things he wanted to write more about. Um, so after he died, uh, this is essentially what he left. Um, without the foreword um, by Abraham Bertese, which was so generous, and the epilogue, which was by me, and um, then some kind of notes, like Paul, I don't know, for people who've read it, if you remember the section we're Paul writing about being a medical student, and the sort of reverse polarity of the cadaver lab, where in CPR class, you pretend that the mannequins are real. And in the cadaver lab, at a certain point, you pretend that the cadaver is fake. And um, sort of the, those sort of weird um, transitions you go through as a physician trainee or clinician. That was an essay that Paul wrote in medical school and was like a piece of why I fell in love with him. It's like, this guy, right? So <laughs> uh, he had written a little note that said, you know, insert anatomy lab essay. Um, and it was like, oh, I know what that is. Yeah, I can yeah. get that. And um, Paul's brother stayed up all night one night um, out of purpose and love, like mining Paul's computer for these various, mm -hmm. his master's thesis and various other things that um, were of a piece with um, the manuscript for when Breath Becomes Air. So um, some of it has been fleshed out a little bit, um, but this is essentially, this is it. And the title and the, um, which comes from this really beautiful, tiny Elizabethan poem. You may have noticed it's the epigraph. Um, it says, uh, you that seek what life is in death, now find it air, it once was breath. And it was in this tiny compendium put together by Robert Pinsky called Singing School. Um, and it's a beautiful um, poetry anthology and it has a few really striking poems in it, at least. So, um, yeah, so it came together. And, and for the, any decisions that would have been made by the writer, I had to make in Paul's stead, which was really meaningful and felt really urgent. And for the cover, they said, you know, we won't rest until you love it. And I was like, it needs to be classic and timeless and masculine and stylish, but not trendy. <laughs> I'm sure you're just like, oh, okay. I guess we'll be next year. So um, initially, it's going to have lowercase all the writing, but it looked a little bit too of the moment. So um, I sent it back. And then it came back with the caps. And the, so it's like there's sort of all these um, layers of. Um, pain and thought behind it. Um, so that, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. 
did mostly hand it over like this because I, you know, when I was reaching the end of the book, I mean, the end of the book is just like how I just can't get over how crafted the ending is, knowing that he actually wasn't totally done. It's just incredible. But anyway, that's not my question. Um, <laughs> um, it was sort of excruciating. Just because he like really was a he writing appeared to be like pain free for him, which I think it absolutely wasn't. <laughs> but um, it was like a real um, solace and distraction. Um, and I they asked for a title for this talk, and I was like thinking to myself, well, we can call it like what it's like to sit next to a writer on the sofa. <laughs> you know, it's like you normally have a writer here, but um, well, I mean, that describe what it's like to sit next to a writer. It leads to my next question, which is, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine that the reception of this book is probably well beyond what you or Paul would have expected, um, or I mean, certainly you hope, but, um, but I'm curious to hear about that for you and also in general, like, what has any, I mean, how, I, maybe it's impossible to articulate what that's been like, um, because Paul's not here to being the person who now leads this book into the world and speaks on its behalf and um, anything that you want to say on that. Sure. Um, I guess there's like the cultural piece, like what actually happened to the book, and then there's the grief, like shepherding part. Mm -hmm. um, I was just thinking the other day, I think, so Paul's book came out on January 12th um, last year. And I was thinking, well, if it had been January 12th this year, I think it could have been a different story because I think when a book enters the world, it hits the zeitgeist in kind of a certain way. And I think this year, you know, I think I think this fit into a place that was paved by other writers or physician writers or narrative medicine and being mortal came out a year before this, and then Paul's came out, and I think it's sort of part of a succession in thinking about at least currently in this, these years of mortality and and the life care, even, and sort of the um, how do we approach suffering and dying as a culture where um, those things sort of seem optional, but um, they're, they're really not. They're just hidden um, everywhere and nowhere. Um, and, but I think this year, you know, there's like cultural fragmentation and cultural um, collectivism and uh, more of a sense of the community than a sense only of oneself, too. And so, um, I think this is like an introspective book. You know, when it first came out, they said, it's not a Christmas book, it's not a holiday book. Um, it has to be after the holidays. Sort of all this thinking about when a book comes out in a publishing house tries to figure it out. And I sort of think, well, it came out in, at the right time in 2016. And um, uh, yeah, that was sort of interesting. And, and also, we didn't know what would happen for a book that was published posthumously. Like, will people, I asked Paul's agent, how do you think the book will do? People read it. And she said, well, it's either going to be very well received or terrible. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I knew those were the polls. <laughs> and she's just like, it truly depends whether people want to read a book that seems only to be about dying by somebody who just died. So, um, but I think it is also about living. And um, uh, then I really loved doing a book tour, essentially did a book tour um, for Paul, first out of obligation, and then because 
it has felt so um, helpful and like sort of meaningful um, during a time of grief. And I think a lot of the time, if somebody dies, um, especially in really tragic circumstances, like um, just tragic circumstances, especially let's say a child or whomever, we get so afraid to bring it up or to mention the person's name um, or to ask about it. Like maybe we're gonna make this person more sad um, while they're grieving. And, and my experience has been the exact opposite. You know, it's like you're sad anyway and you're thinking about it anyway. Um, so for somebody else to enter into that um, and join you is such a relief. And that may not be true for everybody or everybody every day. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like I still get to talk about Paul. And at the same time, the, the sort of searing pain of that loss is lifting a little bit. And so um, it's also, I also think, oh, what if I have to go talk about Paul and I watch the video and I don't get tears in my eyes or And it's like, actually, I've decided I can just describe that feeling um, too, you know. Um, so it's, it's sort of been interesting to think, like, how do you grieve and then how do you move on in a way? And move on is kind of weird. I don't grieve. Move with or, like, you know, stay stuck and probably move on. Or whatever. Um, uh, you know, and it's all just sort of, Especially reading. Um, so when Paul was, um, he describes this moment where he'd been losing weight and he started to have night sweats and really excruciating back pain and then had a chest x-ray that showed sort of scattered nodules in his lungs. And uh, we sort of joked a little time after that that if you hope you have disseminated tuberculosis, you know you're having a bad day. <laughs> the alternative is terminal cancer. And so, I mean, like adding up those questions, like a, um, it's immediately obvious um, that likely that means something really bad and probably cancer. And so after that chest x-ray, he was admitted to Stanford Hospital for a sort of expedited workup and um, quick discovery of you know, biopsy and CT scan and what's going on. And as we were packing for that hospital admission, um, we'd be going into the hospital the next day. I was packing like all the usual things you might think of, like socks and a pillow and iPhone charger and stuff. And Paul packed three books. <laughs> um, <laughs> he packed um, 
Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, um, Solzhenitsyn's novel, Cancer Ward, mm-hmm. uh, and Being in Time by Heidegger. And I took a photo of them like, on that little tray stand that you get next to your hospital bed of these three books, and it was like this little amulet, you know, um, and it was sort of this real this, um, example of like, books are what I need, books is the thing, books of literature is the thing um, that I need in this moment of crisis. And I think, as you people who've read the book can tell how interested as a young person Paul was in um, sort of the search for himself, what will make a meaningful life, and then sort of the idea of mortality as a um, sort of intellectual, philosophical um, challenge, and then um, and through all that was um, running literature and this great love of language and literature. And he loved um, Nabokov and Dostoevsky and um, really loved poetry. He said scripture. He said poetry is more comforting than scripture. Um, and uh, he used to say he didn't like any fiction younger than he was. <laughs> Although I think he liked tankers. I was trying to figure out, I was trying to remember like, what he actually he did love a number of um, newer novels. Um, no offense. And, um, and then he, with his literary agent, um, sort of had this interesting realization where he said, um, you know, I left academia and literature to enter medicine so that I could sort of um, be closer to this like fiery light of direct experience and um, sit with suffering and sort of witness um, these dramas and ethical conundrums and everything. And then when he himself became ill, it was so um, personal that he sort of had to reverse, which was, I need to put words on this mm-hmm. uh, in order to even make sense of it at all. So um, reading and writing came, you know, I don't think he read anything like anatomy textbooks and stuff, literally for like six years as a neurosurgery resident. Um, and then suddenly he was just like surrounded by piles of books. So um, that was very interesting to see. Um, so Lucy, my... Only about T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Actually, I'll just say this thing I was telling Natalie earlier today. She asked me what my, some of my favorite passages are in the book we have and um, one of the passages I really love is Paul's talking about um, the second time he looks at his own CT scan and sees that the cancer has grown again and that he likely will not be one of the people who lives a decade. Um, sort of like this visual evidence of like, okay, I probably have a year or something. And he writes about seeing the scan um, and then he says the treatments are likely to get harder and less likely to work. And then in parentheses, he quotes T.S. Eliot and says, um, but at my back, in a cold blast, I hear the rattle of bones and a chuckle spread from ear to ear. Um, he's describing this you know, skull and skeleton, and it's this really striking moment where he steps back a tiny bit to quote T.S. Eliot, but then he even gets closer to it, right? Because it's like his own body is the memento mori. He is the skeleton. Um, so like, it just is, I, I found it really striking because I did witness him like actually 
um, accepting that or like touching that, um, which was really um, remarkable. So that's one of my favorite parts of the book is to see him uh, like directly have those two things contrasting. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see. One thing that we talk about in, in our program in narrative medicine is that uh, writing and creating is not simply just putting down on paper what you already know, but a process of discovery. And I wonder if, if you saw Paul understanding his illness and his own mortality through the writing, and whether he was able to communicate his needs better through the process of writing. Um, uh, yes and yes. The, um, I think the intellectual exercise of needing to figure out things like a narrative arc, or how deep do you go into certain things, or um, we were talking about today, you know, during the time he's writing this book, he's not writing about the fact that he's writing the book, or that we're sleep training a baby, or that we went to the Super Bowl. It's like there are all these things, and it's like, how do you choose what fits, and how do you choose, um, it, just like the intellectual exercise of choosing what makes it into your book, and who are you in this book, and what is your legacy, um, I think was very helpful for his coping. Um, because I think it did give him a little bit of remove. Um, and I think that's true for many writers, right? Like they're, um, uh, what's the thing? It's like all fiction is nonfiction, or I don't know that. Um, and meanwhile, all nonfiction is fiction, right? Because um, it is a choice of what to highlight and what to say. And, um, uh, and meanwhile, it really was a, um, uh, a personal journal also written to be read, um, certainly foremost, and then also a, um, a secret communication tool uh, between me and Paul because they were reading it at the time. Thank you. Do you think that um, the experience that you had with Paul, being a physician yourself, uh, changed the way you think about caring for people who are sick, uh, caring for people who are at the end of their lives? Um, yes, for the most part. I would say it um, deepened it in uh, sort of imme immeasurably. Um, uh, it deepened some of the things I had thought before. Um, and one of them is just sort of about uh, end of life care, certainly as, um, you know, my thinking, my career previous to this has been focused on healthcare value and thinking about healthcare quality and the cost of healthcare. Um, certainly in a financial sense, and you know, what do the other OECD countries do better than we do? And um, you know, what is our, um, uh, you know, end of life, the way we take care of people at the end of life is sort of a moral, um, one of the big moral questions of our time, I think. Um, and we have all this technology and we don't know quite, um, we're sort of developing the wisdom about when to use it. Um, That was part of why, in the epilogue to the book, describing the way that Paul died, felt like part of the story. Um, that at the end of Paul's life, it wasn't the, um, the, the medical treatment that was gonna, it was the most important thing to him. It was the um, fact of letting a baby come into the intensive care unit, which um, you, know, you don't do every day, but you do on this particular day. Um, 
Yeah, so I think of, I think of healthcare value now um, as including this massive um, human component of um, the experience of the um, clinicians and patients. And I think much of that can't be measured. Um, and, uh, and then I also just think about, I was telling some residents about this today, I got to meet with residents, um, just sort of this idea that um, when you're making decisions in healthcare, the conversation around what, that, what the goals are of that care can be so important even in, in the tiniest decisions. Um, right now I see patients mostly in an urgent care setting at Stanford, and so I'm more likely, rather than talking about end-of-life care, to be talking about how somebody feels that they really need a Z-pack for their cold, and, but, um, you know, it's like somebody comes in and they say, I really need antibiotics, and I really feel that the cold they have is due to a virus, which antibiotics won't help. But if I just say, it's due to a virus and antibiotics won't help you, see you later, bye. Um, that's frustrating for them, and it's kind of frustrating for me. And so it's highlighted this thing, which is like, well, what does the antibiotic mean? And oftentimes it's, my aunt had terrible pneumonia, and I'm really afraid I might have pneumonia, or I'm going on an airplane tomorrow, and I want my ears to be stuffy, or I have to sleep well tonight because I have a huge presentation at work tomorrow. And it's like, oh, okay, great. We, let's talk about the tools we have for dealing with those, those things, which sounds so simple, but it's um, like literally the most fun, um, meaningful part of the job. So, um, and some of it's like the death, and some of it's not, but that question about the um, human piece of what you're really doing is always, always there. Mm. Um, and I don't know if you, if anybody read this beautiful essay in the New England Journal recently. It was written by a physician who then um, became ill, similarly to Paul. And it's a woman, and she works at Wayne State. Do you read, you read this? It's so incredible. And she's talking about the conversations she overhears her clinicians having, and how they sound so different from the other side when you're a patient. Um, uh, she has a sentence that says, um, every, about being a clinician, everything matters always, every person, every time. And um, I was like, yeah, that is, that's the best and worst part about um, this profession. You know, Paul says, um, you can't ever reach perfection, but you can believe in an asymptote toward which you are ceaselessly striving. And he says it a few paragraphs after he talks about his dear and brilliant colleague who died by suicide, um, uh, related in part, in large part, I think, to uh, something that happened in his medical career. And I think that's the great um, gift and a great liability of doing this work is um, to continue to be a human being while you're doing it, and you have to be a human being while you're doing it. Um, so I think all of that has just elongated and deepened and widened for me. Do you, do you feel that um, stories like Paul's and the actions you're taking uh, going around the country really sharing your story can actually influence or shift health policy and thinking about what's important, what's valuable in taking care of patients, especially in situations like what Paul went through? Um, potentially, yes. And I think, probably literally, I, um, I just recently went to a summit on end-of-life care um, that was in Washington, D.C., and two former, two senators were there. Um, uh, and Bill Frist was there and um, 
Tom Daschle was there, and they both said, the way you really change policy is you come to our office and tell us a story, and you have some statistics too, but it's really the story, um, and so it's like what your civics <laughs> teacher taught you, and it was really kind of surprising to hear it straight from them and say, like, oh wow, that's really important, and um, so that I've been sort of hearing um, or thinking about the power of story in a very different way, and um, uh, and I think it's you know certainly to shift a culture, yes, but I think even for people to understand data, mm -hmm. um, and I think about um, you know the writing of uh, people like Atul Gawande or um, Siddhartha Mukherjee, who, in case anybody wants to fan out, I think is in this room right now, um, uh, and um, so. What we're going to do now is, is pass the mic around um, and open up for Q&A. So just raise your hand and I'll bring the mic around. I think there was a mic too. Now it's totally blocked by all the humans, but there was a mic in the back. Okay, we'll start back there. somebody who's about to start medical school, um, what would my advice be? Um, so one piece would be um, keep the essay that you wrote in your medical school applications and then go back and read it later because you will burn out and your relationships will suffer and um, it's very useful to remember who you hope to be um, and then I think, um, I, I'm trying to figure out an example to say this, but, um, cause I don't want to sound cheesy, but my experience, I graduated from medical school about 10 years ago, and my experience has been that I've learned vastly more from my patients, uh, than I did in school or than I will from any other source. And I mean both about medicine, um, there's the old adage that's, where somebody is like, um, uh, listen to your patient, the patient is telling you, um, you know, the patient is telling you the diagnosis. Um, but um, I also mean about life. Like when Paul was first diagnosed with cancer, I think both of us felt, you know, we're only 35, but the richness of this experience of being able to, um, for better or worse, sort of feel like you have a front row seat at, front row seat, to the human condition. I mean, truly, it's been, um, it's such a, um, such a, 
um, gift. And I think um, it's there's just like so much amazing stuff to witness and be part of. And I, um, I, I this is one where I'm going to leave and think of like a thousand things that I wish I had. <laughs> And then I guess one other thing is um, thinking about sort of patient-centered care or value. Um, this is something I talked about with Nelly today too. I think I used to sort of pat myself on the back for saying like, oh, I think we need to, you know, like I, I do a really good job including their patients in their plans of care. And now I'm like, the patient is the plan of care. Yeah. The patient's life is the plan of care. And you are being and that I, the patient is the plan. <laughs> Thank you so much. Sure. Other questions? So the hand up over here, I don't know if we can get the mic. I don't know how we're gonna get the mic over there. Thanks, Kim. Yeah. yeah, go for it. grateful that Paul 
didn't need to consider it. And I think um, the, there have been some really interesting studies that very few, well, very few people approach physicians um, to access that right. Mm -hmm. And of the people who obtain the prescription, um, a smaller portion actually take it, but many say that they feel better that they have it, which is really interesting. And I think, you know, people used to say physician-assisted suicide, and Dan, um, uh, who's married to Brittany, says like, suicide is like the farthest thing from what these people, like they're dying anyway, and what they, of course they don't want to die. Um, and there's some very interesting studies that the retaining a sense of control is a huge driver um, for that, um, for people seeking that. And it's not just pain or other physical symptoms, it's like the idea of losing control. Um, so anyway, I think the questions it brings up actually are very interesting to me and what can we be doing to alleviate um, unnecessary suffering or unnecessary pain and some of it we just can't alleviate and much of it we can and um, yeah, so yeah, and, and actually Paul was asked to write an essay about that for I don't know, like the New York Times Magazine or something, and so I have like the outline of the essay. Um, and I'm like, oh, I, I wish he'd written it, because I'd actually like to see where I ended up with it. Thanks so much for coming and speaking with us. Really appreciate it. It's been, a, it's been a remarkably moving afternoon. I think I've seen one of my classmates on their like fifth Kleenex and counting right now. So, um, I guess I wanted to ask you about that. I, I can imagine that wherever you go, as you read from the book, show that video, tell your story, people are going through real emotional journeys. Um, okay. And I, I wanted to ask about. So I can imagine that being both very challenging and okay. I, I'm sorry. I can imagine that being both very challenging and very very invigorating. And so I wanted to ask what it's like to be at this sort of epicenter of such intense emotionality with such regularity. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. Um, thank you. Um, did people hear that? Should I say it? Yeah. Um, so in a personal sense, it's been wonderful. Um, and that's because for me personally, the hardest time is to be at home alone. And Katie goes to bed at 7 p.m. And then I'm just in our echoey condo. Um, I mean, our condo's great, but it's like nobody else is in there um, with me. And so being out in public, connecting with people over um, real experiences and feelings feels great. Um, and it's like a, it really helps me with um, loneliness. And, um, and then I think I, um, I do think we don't get that many opportunities to say out loud what's really happening in our lives. And I had this sort of out-of-body experience today where I was speaking with residents here, and I mentioned that I had an episode of depression in residency. Um, and I almost mentioned it in passing as a way of, talk, of thinking about coping as a resident, whether or not you've had depression or anxiety or just sleep, sleep, lack of sleep. Um, and I remember when I finished um, residency and I was filling out my first job application, and you go down and they say, have you ever had a mental health issue that would prevent you from taking care of patients adequately? And I agonized, I was like, you know, there's, there's sort of this um, idea that you're supposed to be perfect when you're in medicine, um, and we don't give each other a lot of space to talk about what's really happening. And then same thing with grief, um, where 
we don't always have a language about how to respond to other people's <coughs> suffering. And so I think the chance to just um, be speaking with people or collect people's stories feels really good for me. And I think it also sparks people having those conversations amongst themselves. So uh, it's been really good.
good decision to have the baby. And uh, uh, my parents made a similar decision when my father was very sick. I'm obviously very happy to be here. Um, <laughs>
But you said when Paul knew about the cancer, he felt more, he didn't feel like, why me? But more like, well, it is my turn, not our turn. So I felt admiration, love, acceptance. But I was wondering if there was a moment when he or you felt like, why me? It is not fair. I'm healthy, I'm young. Yeah, so the question of why me. Uh, weirdly, he sort of skipped over it, which I was I was really shocked, kind of. I was like telling the residents today, I said out loud to Paul, like, FYI, if you want to punch a hole in any of the walls in our living room, like you here, here you go. Um, and I really was like, how is he not more angry? Um, and then I was like, well, I'm not that angry, but I there were these other really strong emotions like anxiety and sadness. Um, and I think Paul, and just, he had a deep sadness about not having the career that he had hoped for and about leaving our family. Um, and so then it became more of a exercise and sort of like riding the waves of those emotions because you really can't make them go away. And I have to imagine that with anger, it's the same. You just sort of have to like accept that that anger is part of the experience, I guess. I don't know. Acceptance is so hard. I found mindfulness meditation really helpful. Um, the Paul found reading literature really helpful. And so I think the fact of, um, Paul really loved this poem called Elegy to Philip Sidney um, by Breville, who also wrote the epigraph or whose poem is the epigraph of the book. And um, Elegy to Philip Sidney is this like long, rhyming, mournful poem about by a friend who has lost his best friend. And it's so sad. And it's written like 500 years ago um, by someone who's basically saying, like, why me? And the fact of someone 500 years ago saying, why me? And then us saying, why me? And then, you know, it's like, meanwhile, I feel so grateful for a great many other things that happen to us. So I think it's just like all mixed up together and you just ride the wave. what the editing process was like and what that felt like. So um, the North Star was just like, what did Paul do and what did he mean? And this is Paul's. And there are some like little edits the way there are two books. So um, like copy edits, for example. And some of them went through and some of them didn't go through. I don't know if people remember, Paul says, um, uh, the word disaster means a star coming apart. Um, and then he talks about how to look in somebody's eyes when they get a serious neurosurgical diagnosis. There's no word that describes that better. And the copy editor, who's an amazing genius, wrote back and was like, well, technically, 
disaster doesn't actually mean a star coming apart. And um, Andy Ward at Random House and I were like, it does in this book. Like, that's what it means. <laughs> 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 like, you know, we're, we're going to keep it, we're going to keep it. And so um, editing it felt like a, like what I was really trying to do was speak for Paul the best I could. And then, like, it sort of had the same feeling. Paul, we talked about this in the epilogue, but Paul was very accepting that he was dying, but he never said um, what would he wanted after he died. Like, would he want to be cremated? Would he want to be buried? Would he be, like, all of that stuff. Um, I was like, we need to do an advanced directive. And he's like, well, I'll do an advanced directive if you do an advanced directive. <laughs> <laughs> like, Fair point. So then we did them, and I filled out mine first and essentially wrote like what I was thinking of what I would think. But it feels so abstract when you're writing it about your body and you're not sick. Um, and he's like, I'll just have what you wrote. Even though we talked about everything, it's like, at that moment, I was like, I'm not going to push it. You know, like, I really wish he had said this, but it's like, I'm not going to push it if he didn't say it. And so after he died, it became like our whole family. All we wanted to do was like try to figure out what the heck Paul would have said because he didn't say it, and then he ended up being buried um, in a really beautiful place that I love. Um, but it's like, you know, it was just like, what would Paul said? What would Paul said? What would Paul said? that Nelly got, which was like, who would have ever thought that this writer would be part of a medical school? So um, that does feel right to me because of what a human endeavor this is. Um, and I really like um, the fact that both clinician and patient voices are mixing together in this field, like it's not one or the other. Um, or Paul's experience is like, they're literally the same in one person, but um, I think that's very powerful um, and a real tool for um, empathy. And meanwhile, I feel intimidated, like giving an answer to this question. So I just like I'm not, um, like I'm not an expert to be able to answer that. But it's that's okay, right? Because I'm, I'm a reader and I'm a physician, and I feel grateful for the people who are um, doing this work. Um, and I think it's interesting to see um, uh, just more and more of these essays, like this one I meant, I wish I had the title of this beautiful one, um, being shared among physicians and being shared among patients. I'm part of the lung cancer community too now, and so I have a lot of friends or contacts on social media uh, with lung cancer, and <coughs> many of the same um, essays go around in both circles, and they're just like, what does it mean to participate in taking care of each other? So um, keep writing this. Let's take a couple more questions. Um, wait, uh, I get a question. Um, I just want to 
So, um, oh, yeah, I'll just say a quick thing about a total So Paul didn't read Be Immortal because he didn't want it jumbling around in his head. Um, but we went to see a total speak in San Francisco, which was a really exciting day. And then um, they had mutual mentors in college, actually. And Paul one time wrote this little haiku about a total And I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was something like, the gist of it was like, a mutual professor said I contact I should contact this person, and he, I, he was reminded of, of me. And then it says, um, so I tried writing, and I never heard back. And I tried writing again, never heard back. And I thought to myself, how like me? <laughs> so obviously he really admired him as, a, as he admired many writers. So, um, but in answer to that question, um, I think the interesting thing about the reception to um, multiple books about mortality, including Paul's and Being Mortal, is it appears that people are really hungry to be reading about this or having a conversation about this question about how we die. Um, and I'm not sure that's a new thing, but I think it's certainly new um, how much, um, how many medical advances we have, you know, the fact that an intensive care unit um, or a ventilator or dialysis, you know, to sustain a body um, past death in some cases. Um, so, um, but it's being on the other side and having witnessed it with Paul, it's also still so painful and so unpredictable. Um, you know, when is the time to push and when is the time to pull back? It was, even for two physicians going through it, it was so, um, it really took uh, more effort than I might have thought to really know when it's actually you, what's, what's actually happening to your body. Um, yeah, so I think the, the first step is being able to talk about it. And I think it's, in a family, it's useful to have a starting point, right? Like, I read this article, I read this story, I read this book, or I read something, and it made me think X. Like, what would we say, or what would we do? Um, so I think this type of stuff can lead to a personal conversation. And then I think in medicine, you know, the same stigmas that exist outside the hospital are inside the hospital. And I think in Diane Meyer um, at Mount Sinai says, who um, sort of founded the field of palliative care with others, says, like, I think physicians are just as scared to talk about death as anybody, if not more. <laughs> and I think there are just the fact of saying some of this stuff out loud um, and as and being willing to do that, right, as patients and um, clinicians. And there's some really good tools, um, both in medical schools now, which is new, and um, other tools like Vital Talk or the Conversation Project or um, the Serious Illness Conversation Guide. And it's like the words embedded in those are like talk, conversation, conversation. So um, I think that's the first piece. Um, and I think. For people, my experience now um, being part of the lung cancer community is I get I get a lot of emails from people who either say, I was just diagnosed with lung cancer, what do I do, Who do I, who's the best doctor at the moment of diagnosis, and then I get a lot of emails that are like, I have lung cancer and I think I'm actually starting to die. What do I do now? So it's like those are the inflection points. And meanwhile, everybody's thinking about it all the time. Thinking about it all the time, so um, I think actually saying it out loud 
and it's hard. And it, for a very practical tip, um, the field of palliative care is incredibly useful. Um, they're a field founded out of these unmet needs, and those are alleviating symptoms and helping with challenging medical <coughs> decision making um, when it's really hard to figure out what to prioritize and what to do. And they're like experts in these conversations. Um, so I think that's part of it too. Let's take a final question. <coughs> um, I wanted, I've read the book twice, back to back, and I wanted to uh, also get hold of what he had to say about being a physician, because I am a physician, and um, writing down the names of the books he cited because I'm a writer as well. So it was an exhilarating experience reading that book. I wanted to say that um, the importance of you in helping him live his life the way he wanted to live it cannot be underestimated. The gentleness and the willingness to let him choose and follow his lead including not pushing him if he didn't want to come up with what to do with his body after he died. You were so respectful about that. Um, I wanted to, I can't think of anything to say, but I wanted to do you honor um, the importance and shepherding that book through helping him have a child because he wanted to have a child. So it's an extraordinary person that you are uh, to have helped him do what he did. is not different from life experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, marital advice. So, um, <laughs> what did you say? I said marital advice. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out where to start. Um, the cultural thing is interesting, actually. Paul's parents, um, on the day that we got married, said, you are literally our daughter. And I kind of remember thinking, like, well, the only thing I'm not is like literally. Now, like even now, I'm like, oh, I am literally their daughter. And like, if my sister in law made a joke the other day that was like, well, you know, whoever your next partner might be is just going to have to deal with the fact that Paul's parents are going to say, 
you are literally our son. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you're not really, I'm not releasing Paul, it's just that like, I'm the daughter. That's how it goes. So, and meanwhile, I'm the unmarried daughter now, so that's its own thing. But it's, yeah, that's sort of like categorically wonderful. And we feel like that, um, the cultural piece was sort of an afterthought for me, but then has been really enriching in my own life um, to sort of add on this other, um, these other cultural traditions or values or whatever. Um, and uh, so that's been great. And one time I actually was at this Indian buffet and uh, I told Paul further about it later and he loved the story where I was like getting my food and there's all these white people getting their food and then there's this Indian woman getting food and like I looked up and like made eye contact with her and I had the thought like, we're making eye contact because we're the two Indian people in this restaurant. Oh yeah, she didn't know. <laughs> That's just been like a great part of my life. Um, and meanwhile, like Paul's, my whole family, most of my family's in England, Paul's um, father wore a coat and tails to our wedding, just like my dad did. So that was like really cool. Um, and, and I think that's like, that happens, millennials in this room are probably like, what's she talking about? That's, you know, it's just like there's a, hopefully, the, um, uh, the arc of forward progress continues. So, um, and then, um, just as far as, like, marriage, I mean, I feel like I've learned a lot about marriage during this time, because as Paul talks about, at the beginning of the book, our relationships are on the rocks during this really tough period of work, um, during his chief residency and my postdoc. And I was like worried about the fate of our marriage and we were sort of not connecting in the way that we wanted to. And I think we were each wanting something from the other one that was different from what we were getting at that particular moment. And meanwhile, it's like two years later, the marriage ends with Paul's death and I would have given anything for the marriage not to end. And it was such an illustration of like the power of circumstance in a relationship and the, um, what you really need to do to build a relationship. So I feel like, um, and the thing of like not pushing was certainly like trial and error, right? Like I've pushed in the past, but um, not, and then I sort of like you develop your sensibility. So um, yeah, I don't know. Thank you. Um, I want to use my voice to collective thanks to Lucy for your tremendous honesty and gift of having you with us and also the gift of this book and your work to bring it to us and I feel like we can all conjure Paul into the room and thank him as well. Um, so thank you all for coming. Thank you Lucy again and I will you sign your book. Yeah, so if you want book signed there are very few, but I suspect a lot of you brought it with you. So um, thank you again, all of you.